Hello, welcome to Good Job Podcast, episode four. This week's guest is Luke Augustus, and Luke is an assistant sports editor at Mail Online Sport and is also the founder and editor at Tibbs News. Here's a little bit I've taken from his LinkedIn page. Since January 2014, I've been working for Mail Online Sport, writing and uploading articles for the website on a wide range of sports. I initially joined on a freelance basis and have been a contracted member of staff there since October 2015, where I currently hold the position as UK Senior Online Sports Reporter. Very cool, uh, very cool name strap there. Um, Luke is just a really warm and engaging chap who's just absolutely mad about sport, and I really enjoyed talking to him. We talked about the fast-paced life of a sports news desk, uh, the fallout from the Qatar World Cup, and also how dangerous wheelchair rugby actually is. Big shout out to the guys at Pacific 7 Productions who, again, let us use their lovely edit suite to record this episode. I'll see you back at the end for a bit more, but for now, here we go with episode four. Luke Augustus, welcome to the Good Job Podcast. Thank you for having me, Simon. Uh, Would you mind just explaining to us um, uh, what it is you do? Yeah, so I'm an assistant sports editor at The Man Online. Um, The job basically means... I'm doing a lot of editing roles, um, whether that be in charge of the website, um, guiding our younger reporters, um, proofreading their work, and then occasionally writing work, uh, writing articles myself now and then when I get the opportunity to. And that's, I mean, is that mostly football? No, it's all sports. Um, yeah, so at the minute, for example, Cheltenham Festival's coming up next week. Um March the 14th to the 17th, if I get that right. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of us um, looking after that at the moment. Um, I'm leading the project, so to speak. So we're just trying to drive as much content as possible ahead of Cheltenham, drum up interest um, just for the regular horse racing fans and those who like the occasional flutter like myself um, because I'm pretty clueless at horse racing. But when it comes to a big race, especially when you're at the race, it's like a little flutter. But, yeah, so that's what we're doing. But other sports... Six Nations as well at the moment. Um, so, yeah, it's just covering everything and and anything, to be honest. Okay, cool. And um, what's like, uh, so what kind of, I mean, you said today your hours, you told me your hours were like 4.30 till like... 1.30, yeah. 1.30 in the morning. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that seems odd to me. What, what, yeah. what, why, is, why, why is so sort of late? Like so, um, so, essentially, we have a day team and a night team. Um, night team for any, uh, mainly for the paper, but obviously if there's night football, so today at the time of recording there is Champions League football, Tottenham AC Milan and Bayern Munich PSG. Um, so you stay on to cover those games. And if there's any fallout still, um, we used to just be just basically an English-based organisation, but now we're worldwide. We've got an office in America and an office in Australia. So that helps with the content circulating. So before, sometimes we'd stay on till very, very late because there was no one to be there. Um, For example, my friend and I stayed on till I think 4am last April because because of the American stock exchange market. Um, Chelsea just, Todd Bowley bought Chelsea and it it got announced at 1.37am here. And we were like, we can't leave it because there's going to be, what, six, six, seven hours before someone picks it up. So we stayed on until 4am 
to cover it. Doing what though? Just any like breaking, yes. breaking stories around that that. Yeah, so we literally did the straight news line. Todd Bowley's bought Chelsea, and then social media reaction. If there's any Chelsea fans that are up still at half one, which there were, um, so we was doing that, and then any other little pieces we can do because we had articles prepared ready for the takeover. So we just. Um, flick them live onto the website um, and do you have to like tweak them a bit and make sure they're good yeah, to go make sure they're up to date um, and obviously like one thirty am we were all done and dusted ready to go and then 1.37 we were like yeah we're going to have to stay on which was a late bedtime so to, so oh, to speak man. yeah so so today uh, so, so you're very much dependent on what live sport is happening and yeah. what live sport you've been kind of assigned to cover yeah right. so, so Sunday for example um, I was working for Liverpool, Manchester United. Um, I'm a Man United fan, so it wasn't a good day. But the seven 0 fallout because <laughs> it was so. Just for, just for anyone uh, out there, um, Liverpool v Man United, one of the biggest games of the season. Yeah. Massive rivalry. Huge rivalry. Yeah. Uh, at Anfield, mm-hmm. Liverpool's home, and Man United, who've been flying, mm-hmm. and Liverpool, who've been struggling. And had a few good results up to that uh, just before um, Liverpool beat Man United 7-0. Yeah, Man United capitulated, <laughs> capitulated in the second half. Hey man, I said I wasn't going to bring it up. <laughs> uh, you brought it up, so... That's I- true. It's, it's now out there. It's now out there. <laughs> but anyway, you were saying that was... That yeah. You were covering that. So because of, because of the ridiculous scoreline, there was so much fallout. Um, yeah. So to be fair shout out to a couple of guys that stayed on um, they stayed on past their shift time uh, to help us out and carry on working um, so yes an event like that can make your shift go longer for certain people or if it's a straightforward shift today for example hopefully it should finish at half one or maybe a little bit slightly earlier 10-15 minutes earlier because everyone's winding down everyone's asleep um, so yeah, it literally is dependent on the sporting sporting world We were connected by my cousin, uh, shout out to Will Cope, who's a sports journalist and also a sports journalism lecturer at Southampton Solent University. It's probably more popular course now than it was 10 years ago, right? Yeah, 100%. So um, I've always been sports mad as a kid growing up. Like I just just literally watched any, any sport that was on TV. Um, I'd just be there watching it and playing the sports. Um, and then I didn't know about sports journalism as a course. So... There was people like Des Lynham, uh, Dan Walker, um, who had done history or English, and I did history at school. So my plan was to do history at Southampton Uni and then go into journalism that way. Okay. And uh, when, so where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Kent, uh, okay. Medway. Um, so Rochester. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. 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 Um, so, so you're looking at these like these heroes like um, Des Lynham and they, they've done history and you like you thought oh I'll do his I'll sort of take a similar path. Yeah, I thought that was the more traditional route. So I, I did media studies sixth form as well, but I've never thought about doing journalism. I just thought history and then try and break through that way into into the degree. But then um, I was working at my local sports direct and one of my friends was doing going to go to uh, Solent and do sports journalism there. So. I was like, okay, that sounds really cool and interesting. And then I didn't get the entrance into Southampton Uni. I needed A, B, B, and I got three Bs and they were very strict. So I was really devastated. But at the same time, it opened up the new door to go to Solon. So I went down there, 
I'd already been to Southampton Uni, so I went down to Solo with my mum, looked at the facilities and was like, yeah, let's do it. Um, and then best decision I ever made because um, made great friends. Um, the course was so good and it put me in, I think it, I believe it put me in a better stead than just doing history and then trying to get into journalism that way. Um, and then from there, yeah, I didn't know what I wanted to do to be honest once I graduated. Um, I was, I, I like TV, I like radio, I like print. Um, I just applied for the grad scheme at Daily Mail, thanks to my sister, because she flagged it up to me. Um, and then funnily enough, they rang me to say, come down for an interview, literally as I was putting my robe on to graduate, because we graduated in November um, and the interview was later in November. And I was like, I can't, I can't calm down. They were like, that's fine. Come down next week, enjoy your graduation. Cool, yeah. So I did that. Um, I did the first interview and they really liked the first interview and they were like, come back for the second interview. So I was like, okay, cool. When is, when is that? And they told me it's in 20 minutes. I was like, <laughs> I was literally like, what? <laughs> um, I wasn't prepared because all my mind... Well, they literally going to have a cup of tea and then... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I literally had, I, I got a drink of water, composed myself. I, was, I think I maybe text my family. It's like, I've got another interview in 20 no. minutes. <laughs> yeah. And I walked in and it wasn't... Um, because the first one was one-on-one, -on -one, so it was just kind of just get to know me, et cetera. Right. And then the second one was with uh, news and sports journalists. Right. And they were talking at the time about things that were topical and relevant to them and yeah. what makes them stand out. I was going to say, I was literally just about to ask that, what does a, you know, what what do you have to bring to the table in an interview like that? Yeah, exactly. So in this in this second interview... They were, there was a sub-in test, so test your writing credentials and also your proofreading skills if there's any obvious typo, circle the typo. And then also communication. So for me, I spoke about um, Tom Daly had just come out as, as gay mm -hmm. um, to the world. So I was like, that's a huge sporting moment because he's been in the British, British eye for five years, probably then 2008. Yeah. Um, so I had to kind of blag. And that was, sorry, that was... When, when would this have been? 2014? 20, 2013. 20, 20, end of 2013. So the year before was the London Olympics, yeah. right? So that was, he was big news at yeah, the time. Exactly. So I'm just sitting there just trying to blag it essentially off the top of my dome, like <laughs> uh, thinking about things to say. Um, and then uh, I didn't get on the grad scheme, but um, they liked me enough to bring me in for work experience. Um, so I did three days thinking that was, so that was start of January. Um, thinking our three days, that's fine. And then at the end of that, they were like, "Oh yeah, we we really like you. We want you to come and work on a on a freelance basis." Okay. So um, and then I just started doing three four shifts a week while I was also still at Sports Direct. So it was a bit of a weird one. I was juggling oh, two yeah. different worlds at the time. Oh really? Um, yeah, yeah. And then just from there, I've worked my way up. Presumably, there was a point where you said to Sports Direct, "Cheers, yeah. guys. I'm good now. I'm, I'm I'll, I'll see you later." Sort of thing. Yeah, I think it was. Because I joined, well, I joined officially at the mail uh, end of Jan, start of Feb, and I think it was August. I officially left Sports Direct, which was I've been there since I was sixteen, so uh, about six years, I probably. So I got to know like the managers really well, and I'd always, they always knew it was coming, but it was also it was also a bit weird at the same time, just because I've been there so long and they've become good friends of mine. Uh, but yeah, it was it was a natural thing to do. Yeah, yeah. it's a it's a kind of. Um, it's funny because it it is a bit of a pivotal moment, isn't it? Yeah. Because you know it's happening when you're while you're living it, yeah. and you're say you're saying, "Thanks, I'm leaving." You know, thanks for the good times, and yeah, you can sort of you can sort of feel your own. 
career, I suppose, starting, yeah. which must have been really exciting. Yeah, it was. It was really, really exciting, especially in your friendship group. They're like, oh, you're, you're doing that. And you're like, yeah, like it's surreal because it's something you've always worked and aspired to do. And then you're one of the first in your friendship group to do that. So you're like, yeah, this is actually really cool. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of good a lot of good times. I, I still laugh though at some of my articles. My first byline, uh, <laughs> first byline is cringy looking back, but at the time I didn't care. Um, Louis Tomlinson from One Direction. Yeah. I think he has connections with Doncaster Rovers. That's his local team. Okay. So I had to write an article, but and I put my byline on it because at the time, it's probably breaking ipso rules, but you could put a COD, a COD byline, which is basically a fake byline. Oh, yeah? Yeah, to anything you didn't really want to put your name to. Um, so looking back, I probably would have put a fake byline to it, but at the same time, um, it's something cheesy pun related as well. Like, hey, Louis's got the X Factor as, oh, he's, yeah. Yeah, as he plays the Doncaster Rovers Reserves or something cringy. <laughs> um, so thank you, Chris Cutmore. I'll never forget you for giving me that byline. Um, but yeah, but yeah, that was cool. What was it like? Um, so you said you did work experience for three days. And then they asked you to come back. So you you literally went like, so were you straight in there on the on the floor? You know, I, I've got this like, I, I don't, I didn't, I've ever been in a um, sort of a, a news desk or, you know, you, you've got the view of it when they have BBC News and you see it in the background. And then you've got like, I, most of what I know about things I haven't experienced comes from movies. Yeah. So I'm, I'm expecting like a big floor, loads of desks, people running around with paper going, where is the article? <laughs> like, what was it like, um, Your what were your first experiences and what was it like being a kind of um, sort of bright-eyed, uh, young sort of wannabe journalist? Well, it's funny you say that because there was definitely... Not in a bad way. There was there's definitely like a, a divide in terms of age groups. So I would have been the youngest, if not one of the youngest, at the same time. So there was a there was like five, six of us that were all very close together. I'm still good friends with them now. And then you had guys in their late twenties, early thirties, and then you had the guys in their late thirties, early forties. So there was definitely a hierarchical structure there. But everyone was very welcoming. So when I came in, I sat with one of the guys in the late 20s to early 30s, just learning the ropes off him, learning the style guide and just trying to absorb as much as I can. But obviously it was very nerve wracking because I don't know anyone. Um, I'm just just a young guy just coming into an office. But when you, in terms of the office layout, it was quite open plan. Uh, and still like this now. Yeah, still yeah. like this now. Although we have just recently uh, moved buildings, um, but it's very open plan. You have a morning meeting at 8.30 where everyone's meant to share some ideas they can think of for the, for the, what we're going to do today. Um, and then you kind of listen to the news editors who are basically the guys telling you what to write and when to write it and how to write it. And you're trying to pick up the ideas off them and you're not trying to like let them down. But it was, a, it was a very harsh environment as well at the same time because although they're very welcoming and they're very cutthroat as well because it's, it's time sensitive. Um, they don't want any mistakes. It's got to be clean copy, which is just flawless copy um, straight away. So you're straight into the fire pit so to speak and you're just trying to not make as many not make any mistakes at all I should say yeah um, sure and um did you ever get you know that was that was going to be my next question like feedback you know ev everyone who's worked in a, a, any kind of creative or media industry yeah. has had to deal with feedback from what whoever whether it's somebody above you the client or whatever how did you like deal with that straight off 
I just took it on took it on the chin. Um, I'm not really one to get down and stuff. And no one said anything to me in a negative way. It's kind of just style guides. For example, um, if we were to write first half, I might have written it as first hyphen half, but they will be like, no, you need to do first space half. Okay. So it's just little things like that. And then you pick up, you know, like, okay. Um, and world number one, for example, we would write, before I'd write world number one, literally as as you would. Yep. But now it's world, then capital N, O, small O, and then number one. The, um, the the, number, yeah, the, the yeah, the digit one. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's just little things that you have to pick up. Ah, cool. So, yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, so it's, that's, that was the more the feedback rather than your copy is not good enough or something yeah. or to be fair there's been times where I've tried to think outside the box um, <laughs> <laughs> and there's there, there was a guy that used to work there called Brian who I'm good friends with still um, and I still talked to him I spoke to him recently and he he had a, a dossier because he was the main um, guy that would sub work so if there was anything dodgy from someone he'd he'd note it down and then take a screenshot and put in his like email not to call out anyone just for his own amusement oh right um, and yeah. one of mine was I used the word thrice and he was oh thrice yeah, yeah. yeah. And he was and he was like, as in like the three version of twice yeah and he, as instead of what three times yeah because I didn't want to say three times again too often in my copy so I wrote okay. thrice and he was like what wait when were you born <laughs> yeah so just try and change it up um, what he thought you were some sort of like Victorian uh, <laughs> yeah street journalist yeah <laughs> so things like that he'd always point out like just don't don't do things like that um, what was another right. and, and I think I wrote once one thing about uh, Cristiano Ronaldo once something like a cervical he had a table basically and instead of describing the table as a round table I was trying to be clever and trying to be fancy. He was just, he just laughed at me again. Like, why are you writing that? Because you've already, you've already used round table, just say table. And I was like, well, I'm trying to be different and not to yeah. be too repetitive. But yeah, it's, that's how it kind of unfolded. It's, it's just a process you kind of have to go through, isn't it? It sounds really like sad to think, but paper, the papers are, uh, print media is actually a dying art, essentially. Everything is online. And especially now you've got rivals such as The Athletic, um, which is such a big um, groundbreaking disruptor, which is just purely online. There's a lot more content that's going online. It's interesting as well to see how the industry's changed because... Yeah, I was going to say, how has it changed in that time then? Well, so and now a lot more things can go online quicker. Um, so this is the reason why we do late night shifts because the way the paper works is um, when I first started, and it still, it still applies now, but not to a degree as much but articles that are going in the paper tomorrow would then go on the website at half 10 so that was the embargo time but since now since the way prints evolved and online's evolved a lot of stories in the paper can go a lot earlier which makes a lot more sense really because it just gets them out there quicker to you and I and also if you still want to read a paper you can still read it in the paper the next day it's it's not going to not be there mm. um so and has it does that do you think changed the content that's in the paper now I'd because the the breaking news the, the 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 relevant really really relevant stuff is already out there yeah does that mean that the paper stuff is a bit more considered a bit more we know this happened yesterday we're taking a bit more of a kind of like overarching view on it yeah for some pieces yeah so if there's like a news line which you might hold off until normally, say half ten to get out the next day, 
like an exclusive, someone, the person who wrote the exclusive now might do a, a feature piece or a color piece. So explaining what the implications of said story is to said party. Um, so then that goes alongside it. So the exclusive in the paper might be a bit smaller to make room for a bigger, colorful piece explaining what the implications mean. Um, so that's probably like the biggest thing I'd say for the paper side, yeah. So in those 10 years, how do you think you've changed? <laughs> a good question. Um, I've definitely become a lot more to the point in terms of my writing style. Um, yeah, looking back, I'd probably be a bit more, I'd, I'd say, fluffy in terms of, I don't know, I'd, I'd, I'd do an intro which would be a lot longer than it should have been. Um, but as I've got older myself, I've learned how the company works and also your your style of writing changes. Um I understand what my editors want or what I need to write for myself to then pitch it to other people. Um, I'd definitely say, hmm, that's a good question. In terms of my actual editing, I've become a lot more thorough. Um, proofreading. More brutal with your own yeah. with your own um, content. And I think I've become, um, it's never my demeanour, but I've definitely become more harsher on others, not in the terms of telling them off, just telling them, look, you need to do it like this, basically, because that's how not me, but another editor wants it done. So it's kind of more efficient. Yeah. So I'll always give them feedback in that regard rather than just letting it go because you, they, the only way you're going to improve is if someone tells you at the end of the day what what needs to be done, what needs to be said. Yeah. Um, but I still feel like my personality is still like chilled, laid back in the office. And um, But if I need to be serious, I can be serious as well. And do you, um, so, so kind of how, what is it so what does it look like can you give me a bit an example of like if you so you said pitch an idea right mm-hmm. so if you've got either you get like a brief for an article or you presumably you kind of create a brief or a pitch an idea yourself yeah. how does it work like do you decide how many words do you decide you know do you sit down and write a bit of it how, what's the process so um a lot of a lot of the ideas i would either just communicate and talk to the person directly or i would forward an email on with a few bullet points. Um, so for example, every day for online, we have, um, as I said earlier, the morning meeting, but the day before or the night before we have an ideas email chain. So the news editor will send, hi guys, here's some ideas for today. If you have anything, please contribute your own. And then everyone who has an idea will then just follow the chain and list rather than one sentence, probably like three, four sentences. And then the editor will then pick and choose what they like. But if you have a feature idea, um, for example, I would then go and speak to someone and say, look, this is the idea. I'm thinking of talking to them about X, Y, Z. And then they'll be like, yeah, that's really cool. Or they'll be like, we like that idea, but can you do it on ABC instead of X, Y, Z? Okay, so what a feature would be like a piece on some up and something up and coming UK golf star or, yeah. or, 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 or like, uh, you know, Emma Raducanu's like just about to do the U S open or something like that. Yeah. And, and you say, I want to do a piece on how she's preparing. Yeah. Something like that. You do something like, I want to do something kind of background team, like say for example, her coaching staff, how, what's the relationship there? Um, and then they'd be like, yeah, that's really cool. So then you try and, get information on the backroom staff either by yourself you reading articles and trying to learn more and then reading what she said or the coaches said about her or if you know anyone in tennis circles try and contact them and be like hi can we do you have any inside knowledge um, and then you can always say if they don't want to be attributed directly you can just say a source told 
um, man online, or if they do want to be attributed as so-and-so told Sportsman exclusively, blah, blah, blah. Then right, that's kind right. of how it works. Cool. And and I guess the more interesting a story you can pitch, the more likely that somebody's going to give you the, the thumbs up to, to, to run with it. Yeah, 100%. Um, recently, the whole, I don't know if you read a Tommy Fury, Jake Paul fight. Uh, so I saw it, yeah, advertised. I yeah. mean, I sort of avoided it a bit <laughs> just because it looked a bit annoying, really. Yeah. <laughs> so but, Tommy Fury is, let me get this right, Tommy Fury is um, Tyson Fury's brother. Yeah, half-brother, that's correct. Half-brother. Yeah. And then this other guy, as far as I could tell, is just a, like, TikTok star. Yeah, he's a YouTuber. That's now, YouTuber. That's now become big fire. his YouTube and social media followers. He's now going into boxing. Just started, worked out they decided he wanted to be a boxer. Yeah. Okay. Um, so and somebody organised a fight and made loads of money. Yeah, so he organised the YouTuber. Oh, it's his own promotion company. <laughs> so they've right. got their own rivalry. Um, but yeah, so basically, even though, like yourself, I don't have a huge interest. I did watch the fight just to see if um, yeah. a YouTuber can actually be a boxer. But Tommy Fury won, thankfully, for boxing purists. Um, it was interesting because a lot of people were interested in that fight purely because A, uh, Tommy Fury was on Love Island first. That's when he became into the UK consciousness. Oh, so right, so okay. people were, for example, our people on the homepage or the news page for the actual Man Online website would be interested in the quirky stories rather than just a straight sporting angle. They wanted to know about sure, his sure. background life and stuff. So you had yeah. to, I didn't personally, but we had to think of ideas of, okay, this is, him this is what he does behind the scenes this is his brother this is like you had to make it self-explanatory to someone who doesn't know anything about right. boxing as a sport yeah so it's, it's almost a, a bit of a kind of gateway fight isn't it for yeah. people into into boxing literally that and yeah. so instead of being like this is how he's training this is how he's preparing it's a bit more about you know his like sort of his celebrity yeah. sort of goings on precisely that because a lot of people know so him. you had to go into a bit of an area that you hadn't really been in before then with the whole sort of celeb gossip stuff yeah so like how did you find that <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was different because I, I I mean I must admit I did watch that Love Island when he was on um, so I knew I was aware of him but there was there was stuff we were having to like dish out to people um, probably yeah I wouldn't know anything about his personal life now in terms of how much he's, he's earned since Love Island, um, his, how much his fiance, um, who was also on Love Island, um, how much she earns. You have to do like stuff like that about them too. And then a little bit about the family tree with his brother, um, because you ever, like everyone think, oh, they're just brothers, but no, they're half brothers. Why are they half brothers? You have to delve in to dig deeper into that kind of side of things. So it was, it was really interesting. Um, I think we did a good job. Um, and the guys that actually had to write the pieces, fair play to them. <laughs> right. Where do tips about the inner workings of sports organisations usually come from? And I've put here, i.e. transfer, gossip, you know, who, who, where do these usually come from? You just have, um, so either the club necessarily will tell you so and so, we are buying so and so, but you can't um, publish it until, for example, five o'clock today. Um Arsenal sign someone. Oh, Arsenal. Right, so they will literally say, we are going to sign this guy, but you can't say anything until, until this time. Yeah, until five o'clock. And but do you have to sign like a, a an NDA or something? I think it's just, I'm not sure necessarily of those, but you just kind of like, it's a, a trust, it's a trust thing. Once you break the trust, you're not going to, you're not going to get it back. So you just kind of, you get something prepared. Um, so then the news editor would tell the reporter in the office, okay, 
this is happening at five o'clock. Can you write something ahead of the deadline? For example, Team News. Team News is quite a cool one. With Six Nations, for example, um, you'll get the Team News early, um, but you can't publish it. Um, so you then prepare the file. You can get the pictures in. You can write your own words and then come 12.30, it's out there. Yeah, as, as soon as possible. Right. Um, but in terms of transfer news, you can either get the club, um, the agents, um, someone within the club in terms of just being like a good good contact. We've got a transfer guru called Simon Jones, who's brilliant. Um, I don't know how he I don't know how he copes in the summer and the winter, honestly, because it's relentless the amount of good stories he gets out of. Yeah. Um, he his phone is connect is so well connected. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's kind of just kind of that, and then even sometimes the players themselves, if they're really unhappy. Yeah. Um, but again, that's a confidentiality thing. Like if you break that trust, then yeah, that that link's gone, so to speak. But what about like? Because sometimes I listen to Radio Five, and they'll be like, "Uh, we're getting reports in that you know such and such a player is 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 not um confirmed, but it, it, he is on his way to such and such a team." Yeah. You know. So then that time to be there's a lot of. A lot of industries, I mean, everyone within sports journalism does it, but if a key writer, say, I don't know, at the Mirror or at the Athletic, write a story, 95% of the time it's going to be true. So then you tell your key reporter, this has just happened, they've reported that. Can you chase up at a certain club or okay. something just to see if it's if it's going to happen? Yeah. And then they'll be like, yeah, it's going to be true. So you can harden it up. So what I mean by hardening it up, a lot of articles online, um, everywhere, if they are reporting it from elsewhere, they will have quotation marks around it. So Southampton, quotation marks, are signing Neymar on a free transfer this summer, <laughs> and quotation mark, for example. That would be because they're getting that information from... Neymar might be playing in the championship. <laughs> <laughs> going to I don't know Blackburn next season yeah. but they'll be getting that information from a rival company and then once it's been confirmed by our reporters you'll then take the quote quotation marks out for example oh, wow. so I think a lot of people who don't aren't aware will read articles and they'll be like why are you reporting that but if you read it lower when you actually click on the article you're then attributing where you got the source from so originally from the Sun, the Mirror, the Athletic, or the Times, or whatever. So that's yeah. kind of how it works. That's interesting, yeah, because that kind of leads into my next question, which is like, where um, can you write anything you want, and what happens if you write something untrue or without evidence? Uh, um, can you write anything you want? Uh, no, I would say probably because you have to always have to pitch it to someone, unless it's so. I mean, if it's a straight line. Um, like a newsline or a thing, that's like 99 times out of 100, that is fine. If it's something that's completely false though, um, yeah, when that happens, you either have to get it overwritten quickly. What I mean by that is just take the article down and change it with a completely new story. Okay. Or you have to um, go to our managing ed department, for example, and ask for the article to get spiked, which means just taken off the website completely because online there's always going to be some cookie trail that will take you back to that unless right. you can get it yeah. completely wiped. Um, Plus somebody could take a screen grab of it, couldn't they? Exactly. And then it's never going to go away, is it? There was times, I remember um, last year, there was there was time, uh, Agent Rina, um, Mina Raiola, okay. people thought he had died and a lot of publications were covering that he had, he had died based on one Italian journalist saying he had passed away. But he, had, he hadn't passed away at the time. 
Um, the the, the uh, agent then tweeted in expletives, "I'm not effing dead," <laughs> because he was he was he was in hospital with like I can't remember the condition, but it was really serious. Right. He's like, "I'm not effing dead. I'm 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 still alive." <laughs> and then people having to change their article and update it say, "Mino Raiola says he isn't dead after reports from Italy claimed he was." Um, so there must have been a time in the middle where people weren't sure whether it, whether yeah. it was or wasn't. And it's a case of what do you do? Do you either run the article and say he is dead, but then do it in quotation marks, as I said? Yeah. Or you just wait and see. Some people wait and see. Some people ran the story with quotation marks. Yeah. Um, that's a, that's like as as kind of definitive as you can get, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean... Uh, it was funny to be fair, like looking back how he tweeted saying I'm not effing dead, like yeah. I'm still alive and kicking. But yeah. and, and then the Italian journalist had to apologize. Um, but yeah. then like his credibility went because on Twitter his social media mentions every time he was tweeting for a, a long period of time was you're a liar, you said he was dead, blah blah blah. Uh, like he's not dead and he's just like yeah, you have to be careful, don't you? Brutal, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But yeah, you should I mean, I guess um you're right, you have to be careful and mm. <laughs> definitely make sure whether people are definitely alive or dead. <laughs> 100% accuracy is key. Accuracy is key. <clears throat> um, so what I was wondering is, um, so you, you, you do all, you're saying you do all kinds of sport mm. and I was just wondering what, what the strangest or most obscure sport that you've covered is, is, as a journalist. Ah, obscure sport. Um, I'd probably say like the most niche sport I've done is wheelchair rugby and just because I knew nothing about the sport um, but it was really cool to learn about it and that was when I was at Solon um, and yeah just seeing how brutal it was yeah I don't think I've 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 seen wheelchair basketball that's quite popular isn't it but uh, wheelchair rugby yeah is like do they tackle they tackle in their wheelchairs? So they have um almost like tag rugby have they have the um I guess they call them tags either side of their chairs okay. and you kind of try and pull them off. Yeah. Um and once you pull one off then they've got to throw the ball away. But you got to get your hand down there. Yeah. And and very high chance of it getting like caught between yeah, your wheelchair and the and the other person's wheelchair. Yeah, it's it's a brutal sport. Uh, <laughs> it's a brutal sport. Yikes! Um, yeah, and but other than that, is it the same? Um, it's the same as rugby. Like you can't pass forward. And, yeah, you can't pass forward, and and, and you have to. Uh, you get it over the line. Yeah. Okay. I'd probably say that is probably the most. Is it on the same size pitch? No, no, no. no. So it's like a it's in in an indoor court. Okay. Um, so almost like a basketball like netball type dimensions. Right. Um, and then yeah, it's, I think there, there was recently like the rugby league. I want to say World Cup that was in the UK. Wow. Um, which was quite. Cool. I watched a bit on TV, which is quite interesting. I'm going to check that out. That sounds yeah. Really, that sounds really interesting. That's probably is the most. Uh, there'll probably be something else niche. And did you watch it live? Yeah, I watched it live. Oh, yeah. Really? So you, you see the collisions and it did a couple of interviews with people. Yeah. Um so yeah, that was that was cool. Oh cool man. Yeah, I'm definitely gonna check that out. That sounds, <laughs> that sounds really cool. Um I also wanted to ask, um I just kind of wanted to So this see this football season, um we've had a break in the middle for the World Cup. Mm-hmm. Would you mind just explaining to anyone out there who for whatever reason a isn't interested in football. B has missed missed the whole thing. Um, where it was, what, why, why, the, why we have to stop in the middle of the season for for a World Cup? 
you know what what the whole situation surrounding it was yeah so traditionally the world cup is every four years taking place in the summer summertime um 2010 i believe the world cup was awarded to qatar um which as we know the climate in the middle east is not conducive to playing football at that time however there were promises made initially that they were going to have air conditioned stadiums and it would be fine to run in the summer However, as logic finally kicked in and more truths were revealed, it would have to be played in the winter, which was still highs of 35 degrees, which is crazy to to think of as a footballer playing in that. Um, and then obviously, as they were started building, developing stadiums, there was a lot of human rights issues, a lot of um, deaths involving migrant workers, a lot of deaths involving Qatari workers that weren't necessarily flagged um by the Qatari people um and the, uh, the Qatari authorities authorities yeah. um so there was a lot of people that were questioned why the world cup is a now having to take place in the winter which has never happened before and b why it's in such a such a state that is not acknowledging their own faults and then to make it worse um there was also a lot of issues around um the country's LGBT views and whether it's right that they should be staging a, uh, a World Cup there. There was there was pictures of people getting denied uh, entry into the grounds for wearing rainbow-coloured flags or wearing rainbow-coloured hats or anything rainbow-coloured clothing. So there was those yeah, issues Yeah, so there. to be clear, um, if you're gay in Qatar, it's illegal to be yeah. to be gay. Yeah, and yeah. so there was, there was all those issues to begin with. Um, and then in terms of the World Cup itself, you saw there was still a lot of issues there because Qatar isn't uh, is in a football mad state. So when you got to grounds, there were a lot of people lying about the attendances. They would say it's sold out and you'd watch it on TV and you could see there's empty seats everywhere. Um, so it just caused a lot of issues for A, fans, uh, B, the players, the managers, um, just everyone involved. As, as a spectacle itself, it was a good World Cup. You can't deny it. Um, shame England, obviously, losing to France was heartbreaking. Yeah. But there's, there, there are... I don't know how people look back on the World Cup. There's there's the, the, the argument, the other argument that um, I think, you know, I, I've seen Gary Neville make and a lot of the sort of, um, sort of pundits make uh, is that, OK, there's all these problems, but you know, at least we're here and this spectacle is shining a light on it. You heard you heard that mm-hmm. a lot, right? It's yeah. shining a light on these these issues, the shining a light on the um LGBTQ plus um mentality, mm-hmm. um, shining a light on on the um rights of migrant workers. Um which I think that the however many hundreds, possibly even thousands of migrant workers that died I don't think they care about shining a light. And precisely, we're not talking about those issues now, are we? For three, four months after the World Cup. Right. So no one's talking about the the after effects that the World Cup's had on Qatar. Yeah. Everyone's kind of just moved on. Right. Yeah, so... And now they've got these stadiums that they've built, which presumably are just empty. Yeah, so there's some stadiums that were literally built out of shipping containers, which are now going to get knocked down. So you're thinking okay that's cool and that's oppressive but at what cost have you built those stadiums for because they're not it's not a football mad country as we said it's not a legacy um, there's talk that those shipping containers are going to get moved to 
if I think if Uruguay win the World Cup bid for 2030, they're going to get shipped over and they're going to make stadiums out of those to make it self-sustainable. I mean, that's, I guess that, I mean, that's not a bad idea, but it's not, it's not short hop, is it, from Qatar to, <laughs> to Uruguay? Yeah, exactly. And there's, and there's no guarantee they're going to get the World Cup anyway. At the yeah. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of... It's just, it is, I mean, it, it, I felt like it was a point in football's history which the the money, the corporate, the the sort of um you know the big the big guys, you know, the the what what essentially looks like men middle-aged men in suits what with money to be met with money and then more money to be made from this deal won out didn't they 100%. and the people that football had always been for before people like you and I mm-hmm. um who just love football for what it is um lost out really you know and everyone says oh the football was great the football was great the football football's football you know I will literally st- I walk my daughter around Clapham Common and I will stop and I will watch any game. Because <laughs> and my missus is like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, oh that, that wing is really good. You know, or like, yeah. do you know what I mean? And it's like, I, the football would have been good if they'd, they'd played it in, 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 in sort of parks in London or, <laughs> or, or, or anywhere, you know. Yeah. Of course it was good because you had amazing players and you, you know, you, you had, you know, people who wanted to play for their countries, you had good stories. And I don't think that that is an argument. I don't know, you know, okay, the officials did well and, um, you know, the games were set up well and, and all that sort of stuff. But it's football, yeah. you know? It's, it's 90 minutes, it's 2.45s, you swap ends and there's 11 players and one of the guys is allowed to handle the ball. Yeah. You know, it's not it's not... It's not rocket salad, as my mate Justin always says. Um, So I don't know if that's an argument. I do feel bad that it seems like everyone's having a go at Qatar, you know. And and then there must be people there who do love football and were really pleased that a kind of big spectre was coming to their small country. But from the outside, it does just look like a humongous money-making, corporate money-making scheme for big, big, big companies and players um, and I don't mean players like football players. I mean big money, yeah. big money corporates, and and it just seems unfair. I was reading a little bit about you on I think m- m- must have been LinkedIn. Okay, yeah. And at some point in your um, you know your your career development, I know I noticed that you'd set up a uh, a website with with some mates. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so it's called Tibbs um, Tibbs News. Um, and it was set up with my course mates at uni. So um, basically the idea came about um, in the second year, we had some um, journalists come down from various organisations to talk to a few of us about getting into the media industry. And the one thing they always said was do something to stand out because a lot of people back then were doing blogs um, and they were like, try and do something that can make you stand out to your future employers, etc. Um, and then for some reason, I don't really know why, I had a light bulb moment to think of creating a website. Um, and because my course mates and I were were so incredibly close because we were only about 32, 33 people, but we were such good friends, um, so, so tight. I, I said to the boys, like, let's create a website. 
Um, and thankfully, someone knew someone that created a website. So we all paid, I think we paid £400 between between 32 of us or whatever. Um, can't work out what the maths is, probably. Oh, so it was, it was your whole your whole yeah. year, your whole year group? Whole year group. Yeah, so we created it in that summer um, for Ooh. literally about 400 quid. So probably about 15 to 20 quid, maybe, if my maths are good enough, yeah. per person. Um, and then we launched in October 2012 of... Because yeah. you wanted a, a platform where you guys could write articles yeah. and have a kind of legitimate yeah. kind of... Uh, stream of, of content that was out there in the world 100%, that you owned because at that point we had done stuff for other websites like you're writing for blogs you're writing for um i write a piece for like a magnite blog i write a piece for shoot magazine um which was cool because it was a great experience but at the same time you're doing it for other people rather than you're doing it for yourself um so this this gave us like carte blanche to do whatever we wanted um and then yeah it just took off massively um for like the first year, I think we got two over two hundred fifty thousand views, yeah, which was like amazing. Um, and what sort of stuff were you writing? So basically, everyone everyone could write about what they wanted. So we would right, really, we, we're an all sports website. So we had people writing about West Indies cricket, um, people writing about like the most quirky sports imaginable, um, which was like top tens of just the weirdest and wackiest sports, which was which was fun fun to read. And then you'd write like serious articles. Um, yeah, and then we weren't really doing too many match reports. To be honest, we we're doing reviews of stuff, so like yeah. a championship review or a League One review, rather than a right. specific separate. I don't know Liverpool Chelsea match report. Um, yeah, cool. So that's yeah. How, that's how I kind of took off, and yeah, the only regret I have because it was so good, it's so big, is not doing it sooner at uni. Right. Um, I yeah. wish I wish we did it end of first year into second year, yeah. and then second year, and then we had two years at it because that first year was so so good. Um, and then we've got Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. So we've got about 8,000 followers combined roughly on, yeah. on those three platforms. Okay, so Luke, there's two questions I like to ask all my guests. Mm-hmm. Um, one is, what do you love most about your job? And the other is, um, what do you find most challenging about what you do? Let's start with the challenging one because I like to end with the positive. So. <laughs> what's the what's the most challenging thing? Um, just juggling your life outside of the job, just because the hours are crazy. Um, as we discussed earlier, half four. Sometimes you're finishing till half one two. Sometimes you're starting work at six a.m. So you're getting up at half four in the morning. So it's hard to the sacrifice you have to make for the job. That's definitely the most challenging aspect of it. There, I remember being at uni. Will. Um, Will Cope telling us and other lecturers saying you will make sacrifices in this job you will miss birthdays you will miss other important family events and it's happened it's happened it's true and you're just having to plan and try and juggle for example um, at the time of this recording I've got a friend's 30th birthday um, but I can't go because I'm working um, and it sucks but have to take it on the chin and kind of that's just how it is in this, in this industry yeah um, I mean you're right I am um, funny you should, me- you should mention Will my cousin, who was your lecturer, I had to miss his 40th birthday party, which is a big, they organised a really big do, and I really wanted to go, but I was working, you know. I, I don't do what you do, but I work in sort of media yeah. and um, film and video. And you're right, yeah, it's, um, you go with the workers, don't you? Yeah, exactly. And also I'd probably say outside of that, 
it's transcribing because it needs to, because just the it's an absolute ball lake at times. But oh, no. specifically transcribing an interview. Yeah, yeah. Because ten minutes is a thousand words. So if you're speaking to someone half an hour, that's that's three thousand words, and then you're trying to pick out the best bit. So those are probably the two biggest things I'd say. But social, social, definitely number one. Yeah. Um, best bits though are for me. I I get a buzz seeing my name on in the paper for example like physical something physically to hand that you can be like yeah I've done that um, that's really cool so when it says when you've got an article when it says by Luke Augustus yeah that's 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 a great buzz and also going to live events there's nothing better than going to a live event and just hearing the roar of a crowd I remember last season I covered an FA Cup game Southampton versus Coventry that went to extra time but just before before even getting into the game itself, just the atmosphere and just soaking it all up, and you're like, yeah, this is why you, this is why you've done journalism. This is what you want to do. Um, so that that's a great feeling as well. That's wicked, man. Really cool answers. Thanks for that. Um, right. So now we're at the end. It's been lovely talking to you. Likewise. I had a really really good time chatting. Uh, we've got our we've got our end feature, which is <laughs> do a bit of work for us. Uh, what are you going to do for us, Luke? Um, I'm going to read if if it's not too boring. Hopefully, um, an exclusive interview I did with Joffrey Archer. Um, the reason I've chosen this piece is because it was his first ever um, English media interview. Um, so, and who's Joffrey Archer? So he's the England cricket seamer. Um, at the time, he hadn't played for England, but there was a lot of hope and expectation he would um, because he's got West Indian roots. But he qualified through England, um, I want to say through his stepfather. He qualified to play, play for England play through for his stepfather, I right? Think, I think so. Um, I have to read that. But interview, just to double check. But um, yeah, so he was an English seamer. Um, and we, we went to Lords, the home of English cricket. One on one, we spoke really well. He was really good, really good, the company, good chatty. Um, and then he stated his ambitions to win the World Cup with England which was taking place in England that summer and he achieved that goal. So that's something I'm really proud of because it was his first ever English interview. Take it away. Okay, cool. Hopefully it's not too bad. Okay. It was cricket's worst kept secret, but it still took Joffrey Archer by surprise when he was heading to play five-a-side football with his mates and Ed Smith called. I was on my way to football. I felt the phone vibrate and answered it to the car's Bluetooth, Archer says, of his England World Cup call-up. I called my mum straight away. I'd just left for football, so I thought she was calling about something else. I told her and she was more excited than I was. His mother, fashion designer Joelle, is not alone. Her Manchester United supporting us, supporting son, has caused quite a stir. The 24-year-old fast bowler's accelerated path to the England setup is well documented. He was born in Bridgetown, Barbados, and although his mother is Bayesian, he has a British passport through his English father. Last November, the England and Wales Cricket Board changed their residency rules, meaning Arch would be available in time for the World Cup build-up. Under the previous guidelines, he wouldn't have been eligible until the winter of 2022, following a seven-year residency. Having qualified in March, he then impressed in, his, in this month's warm-up matches against Ireland and Pakistan, to such an extent that he was shoehorned in for Owen Morgan's number one world rank side. If things go right for England over the next few weeks, there will not be many sports fans out there who won't recognise Joffrey Archer. Lovely. Really good. That's really nice, man. Thank you. Um, Luke Augustus thanks for coming good job podcast no thank you very much for having me Simon it's been a pleasure I appreciate it so 
there we go. What a lovely chap Luke is. I've put a link to Luke's full Joffre Archer article in the description, as well as links to his LinkedIn page and his Tibbs News website. Thanks again to Pacific 7 Productions for giving us somewhere lovely to record this episode. Uh, I've got some really great guests lined up for the next few episodes, so like, subscribe, whatever it is you need to do to get the Good Job podcast ASAP. But for now, thanks guys and good job. Thank you.